This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's felt that nearly half of all adults in the United States have hypertension, and it's one of the most common reasons for a patient to be seen as an outpatient. Despite this, it's estimated that only about a fourth of those diagnosed with hypertension really have it adequately controlled, and about 20% of adults with hypertension are unaware they even have it. While the majority of patients have essential hypertension, about 15% have secondary hypertension. Since uncontrolled hypertension can increase the risk of cerebral, cardiac, and renal events, it's really important to make an accurate diagnosis and appropriately manage patients with the condition. So today's topic is hypertension, and our guest is Dr. Ivan Porter, a nephrologist and hypertension specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Ivan, welcome. Thanks for being here. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start by talking about blood pressure in general, because it somewhat changes as we get older. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. You know, everyone can be at risk for hypertension. Women tend to have more hypertension diagnosed over the age of 65. Men tend to have more diagnosis of hypertension at a younger age. But as we age, the prevalence of hypertension does increase. So for years, we have had recommendations regarding the definition of hypertension and management recommendations from uh, JNC. And those came out every few years, but that seems to have stopped. And so when did that stop and who's replaced these recommendations? That's an interesting point. The Joint National Commission, you're right, uh, was disbanded in, I believe, 2013. Um, And that was the seventh iteration. So going back to, I believe, the late 1970s was JNC1, where they had first, I think the systolic goal at that time was 140. But since that time to now, we've just been inching down and down and down and down further. It's a complex topic with so many nuances. And that's why people are used to hearing about so many different guidelines and so many different goals. Well, what's their age? Oh, well, what are their comorbidities? All these other things that we want to factor in that help us get to a blood pressure goal. And after the disbanding of the JNC in uh, 2013, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association put together a group that going forward would be setting these uh, standardized blood pressure goals. And so I believe 2017 was the lowest goal that had been quoted where we finally got our systolics down to 120, over 70 being normal and a diastolic above 80 being considered hypertension at that time. So, you know, basically with those new guidelines, we created a whole new class of citizens with hypertension overnight and probably could have done a little bit better job focusing on the nuance of what to do with that information rather than having patients wake up, go on the internet and realize that now they're a hypertensive patient. But hopefully that's the work that's been done since then and will continue to do as we continue to study this problem that affects so many different people. Well, you, you raise a good point. There are so many uh, groups now that come up with recommendations about uh, what is hypertension and how to treat it. It has become quite confusing. So what do we generally accept as a definition of hypertension currently? I think it's pretty well established and that's amongst multiple specialties. Okay. No fights between cardiologists and nephrologists. We got to get that kidney perfusion as a kidney doctor, but 120 over 80 
is considered normal. And what changed most recently was that the range of 120 to 129 became known as elevated. That means that 130 systolic became stage one hypertension. And that means that 140 systolic became stage two hypertension. That also corresponded to a 90 of the diastolic readings. What didn't change, fortunately or unfortunately, probably unfortunately, were previous guidelines that made recommendations about the number of medications or the frequency at which to start medications based solely off the stage. So anyone that was used to practicing a certain way, oh, you've got stage two hypertension. I've got to start two medicines. I've got to do that. That may have changed if now the blood pressure target was lowered. But to answer your question, 120 over 80, I think pretty much all can agree uh, that there's good data that if you can get the blood pressure that low without causing any other problems, that it should be that low. My concern is that we'll be sitting here 15 years from now and they'll be telling us that, okay, well, if it's 90 over 50 and they're okay, then that's good. There's less cardiovascular events. So obviously we've got to uh, meet mm -hmm. somewhere that's best for the patients. Well, now I'm a geriatrician and in many conditions, we relax the recommendations a bit for such as diabetics. We don't want them too tightly controlled because of the risk of hypoglycemia. Blood pressure, maybe the same thing. Do we want the elderly as tightly controlled as a younger adult? Yeah, there's definitely evidence. This gets back to my point about different studies look at different outcomes in different populations. But there's definitely some data that talked about a safer, higher blood pressure goal in the elderly population. I think most would argue that even in the elderly populations, if we look strictly at cardiovascular events, if the blood pressure is lower, there's going to be less of them. So again, that speaks to your role as a clinician to really find out what's the best blood pressure goal for your patient and what can they tolerate? How much risk reduction is worth it as compared to the problems of polypharmacy, the electrolyte abnormalities, acute kidney injury, somebody that's a poor fluid intake person, how they eat, all those things have to be taken into account. And, you know, when we go strictly by guidelines, sometimes we miss those nuances, those intricacies. And that's if, you know, if you're going to treat hypertension and keep the trust of your patient, those are the things that you've got to be thinking about constantly. Sure. Yeah. And I tend to see more orthostatic hypotension in the elderly. And uh, again, you, you don't want to get them too low for fear of them uh, passing out and breaking a hip or something. Absolutely. I speak to my uh, hypertension expert colleagues, and I always bring up the patient that can't even pick up their grandkid anymore because mm -hmm. of the, the effects these medications have and how you're really impacting their life. So they may not have a stroke, but are they really enjoying what they're doing right now? Those are things we have to think about. Yep. All right. Well, let's change the topic just a bit and talk about how you diagnose hypertension. How many blood pressures do we really need in order to establish a diagnosis? Yes. Another loaded question because there's so many different ways that we monitor blood pressure and there's so many different devices. Not all of those devices are validated, but there may even be different goals depending on the mode of measurement. Ambulatory blood pressure monitoring goals may be different than in office readings, which may be different than home readings, which may be different from automated office blood pressure readings. So you have all of these different ways that we monitor the blood pressure. The real answer is that you shouldn't make a decision based off of one of those readings. The more information that you get, all of that can be additive 
to make sure that you are doing what's best for your patient and not reacting to a situation or reacting to a number that's in front of you and not paying attention to that being a wrist cuff from the home readings or not paying attention to the time of day that the patient may have been taking their blood pressure or the number of times in the day that the patient was taking their blood pressure. All of those things can play a role in the values that we see. Obviously in the office setting, multiple readings, three readings, two readings, depending on how high the value is and depending on what those external factors are, is a good general rule if you're trying to confirm that someone truly has an elevated blood pressure that places them at an increased cardiovascular risk that you can make a difference in either by pharmacotherapy or some other type of prescribed activity or dietary changes, et cetera. You mentioned home blood pressure readings. Do you find those taken by the patient of help to you? I do. I certainly use those. In my office, we tend to use the automated oscillatory blood pressure. So a device takes three and we take the average. And that's a pretty good general vital sign that we will take and deliberate on. There's still other nuances to think about how some of the other external factors around how their blood pressure was measured. Were they in a rush coming into the office? Were their feet on the foot? Was their bladder full? There are all these other things that we certainly know affect blood pressure. But home readings absolutely help. They can talk to me about the effects of medication timing. Uh, I can see differences in the time of day values uh, compared to when the patient took their medications. And really, it's just one variable of many that I can use. So combining that with the office reading, and if there's discrepancies, combining that with an ambulatory monitor, all that will help me get to a number to act upon that's going to be most beneficial for my patient. I tend to see more variability in patients' home readings than I see in my office readings, and I suspect that's because of their technique. So I spend a fair amount of time discussing the proper technique of taking one's blood pressure. Can you review that with our listeners? How should we instruct our patients, or how should we do it ourselves to ensure an accurate blood pressure? The problem is the majority of our office settings likely don't allow for this to happen an accurate blood pressure reading. Patients that are talking while they're having the blood pressure readings can have an elevation of their blood pressure. If the cuff is over a sleeve or a jacket, that can raise the blood pressure as well. But oftentimes we're not necessarily going to the bare arm. I talked a little bit earlier about a full bladder that can add levels to the blood pressure. How about where the arm is? The arm isn't at the heart level or your arm is unsupported, for example, that can increase the blood pressure. Cross legs, feet on the floor, back supported in the chair, and then also just a rest period of five minutes of quiet before the blood pressure is taken. I'm not sure how many primary care office settings allow for such a thing to occur in the hustle and bustle of a day where you're moving patients through. So we sometimes by design, we do a disservice to the measurement of blood pressure and patients may do that at home. So you're absolutely right that having some instruction of how to take it, how often to take it, when not to take it, not to be reactive and take it again, especially in certain patients that have a little, we know they have that sympathetic effect from some increased anxiety that occurs. Your white coat hypertensives, they know that I know it's going to be high. I know it's going to be, all of these are things that you have to kind of prep a patient for. And again, it gets to my point of taking multiple readings from different ways of the being measured, getting all that information together, and then making the best decision to reduce risk, but not negatively affect someone's life. 
I have my blood pressure checked when I go to the dentist, which is probably the worst place to have a blood pressure checked. And uh, the technique the uh, oral hygienist uses is for me to support my own arm. And she uses a wrist blood pressure monitor. And I know those aren't correct techniques, but I'm not about to correct her because she's about to stick sharp things in my mouth. So I just accept it's going to be high. It's probably safe. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the different types of hypertension, specifically systolic hypertension, which I think we tend to see more in the older population, but it's kind of a form of hypertension, uh, but a unique one. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So sometimes both numbers are high. You have a high systolic reading, the top number, a high diastolic reading, the bottom number. Sometimes you have isolated diastolic hypertension and sometimes isolated systolic hypertension. All of these will have the impact of some cardiovascular disease, vessel disease, pressure on the heart, causing some heart disease. And so looking at these targets, which are listed on our guidelines, right? I told you less than 120 is considered normal for systolic, but less than 80 is considered normal for diastolic. So once you get into that 90 or higher, you've actually already bumped up to stage two hypertension on the diastolic reading. Diastolic readings that are higher than 100 are defined as hypertensive urgency and hypertensive crises as well. The different numbers and the different goals may complicate how we treat. If somebody is 120 over 100, it just may change how aggressive we can be with our therapy. Everyone can start with some of those lifestyle modifications, and sometimes you get some positive effects. You know, reduction of other risk factors, smoking, alcohol, sometimes you get some effects. Often you are, like you talked about, your patients with that have some orthostatic hypotension. You definitely run the risk in some of those cases of causing some untoward effects by lowering the blood pressures in certain situations because you're trying to target one of those other numbers. Another common thing we see is the patient who says, oh, doc, my blood pressure is always higher in your office than it is uh, when I check at home, known as white coat hypertension. So which blood pressures do we accept? The office readings, the home readings, a combination? How do, how do you assess a patient who says that? That's another one of those nuances that you've got to be skilled at because you don't want to cause more harm to your patient. And you're absolutely right. If that blood pressure is normal at home, they come into the clinic and it's extremely high, and then they leave and they do some home monitoring and it goes back to normal, there is probably more harm than good that's going to be caused by trying to drive down that blood pressure. And they're going to be complaining about all the fatigue and confusion that they're having at home due to those low blood pressures that occur. There's also masked hypertension. So you think about the opposite of white coat hypertension, but the pressure is normal in the office. But then they go out to their job and the stress that they have raises that blood pressure or like as I said, smoking or during vigorous exercise. Some people might even feel comforted by the physician. And so the blood pressure may seem lower in the office because of that. So you really do have to take into account all of those different variables at different locations if you're going to do the best for the patient without causing more harm. And sometimes that can be a little bit more time-consuming process and definitely difficult to do. One of the problems with blood pressure is determining when we look for a secondary cause. I, I think the majority, about 80, some 85% have essential hypertension, but uh, there's that small percent that has a secondary cause for their hypertension. When should we suspect that? That's a good question. Not everybody deserves a full evaluation for secondary causes. However, you know, some people, you have multiple medications that you've started and they don't respond. I mean, that's an easy 
way to think, okay, well, something that I'm doing isn't good enough. I've got to do, I've got to do more. But in the initial approach to a patient with hypertension, the testing that you do can sometimes point to decisions that might lead you towards a secondary cause. All the tests that we are doing are really to assess for other organ problems, assess for other comorbidities, and then also allow us to kind of pick and choose the optimal therapy. If I see electrolyte abnormalities, if I see other derangements in sodium and potassium, that may help me point towards an adrenal or hormonal or aldosterone-related cause. If I see that somebody has chronic kidney disease, if I'm hearing in the history about a history of snoring, if I am visualizing a BMI that's higher than I would expect, the presence of proteinuria, all of these things that occur in the initial evaluation of hypertension can point you down the path of somebody that may need a little bit more of an extensive evaluation for renal artery disease. If you think about the patterns of when they are having high levels of high blood pressure or whether or not they're being admitted to the hospital with issues of pulmonary edema or fluid on the lungs, is that why is that occurring? Why has this happened twice this year? These are the things that would make you think about a secondary cause. You know, the, everybody wants to find a pheochromocytoma and it's not a pheochromocytoma, but if it is, thinking about those palpitations and the headaches that occur periodically, looking at the shape of your patient, I already brought up obesity, but thinking about things that might look like Cushing's syndrome, differences in the blood pressures in the arm, right? Thinking about some other vascular disease or coarctation of the aorta. All of these are secondary causes that come out from a good exam and a, a good initial evaluation of, of the patient that shows up with hypertension. I think the only time I have found a field chromocytoma is on a board exam. And I, <laughs> I, I keep looking for my first, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's turn to treatment just a bit and uh, let's start with lifestyle changes. What lifestyle changes can help lower blood pressure? Yeah, that's an easy one, right? Not really. I say that, but our lifestyles, the way that we work, uh, sometimes they don't allow for some of these easy lifestyle interventions. In general, you think about weight loss. We know that losing some weight, getting to that ideal body weight, that in and of itself can cause a brisk reduction in blood pressure. You know, I've seen quotes as high as a, a, a one millimeter of mercury for every kilograms so or every two pounds, you're losing a number in the systolic readings. The diet plays a huge role. We know that a diet that's a little bit higher in potassium has been associated with lower blood pressures. So the dietary approach to stopping hypertension, that DASH diet that's high in fruits and vegetables and your whole grains, low fat dairies, you're looking at up to 10 points on blood pressure reduction in those. And if you add those to the benefits and weight loss, you can make even bigger gains, right? Sodium, some of us are more sensitive to sodium than others. You know, the way that we measure sodium in the urine isn't very reliable. Some people's sodium uh, excretion may not relate directly to sodium intake. And that can be confounding sometimes, but we do know that a reduced sodium diet is also associated with a reduction in blood pressure along with physical activity. So I already brought up weight loss, but the physical activity in and of itself also lowers blood pressure. And then you think about some of the other vices, some of the other hobbies that we have, alcohol intake. I think recently we reduced the recommendation that men can have one drink a day used to be two for men and one for women. I think everybody's at one now, even though that's hard to get everybody to jump on board with, but a reduction in alcohol intake, smoking as well, all of these small things that we do add up when you put them together, kind of the same way I approach medications, which we'll talk about later. But yep. you know, a little bit of all of these things is better than none. 
and probably better than all of one of them. And I have found that if you can convince patients to make some lifestyle changes, if their blood pressure is only mildly elevated, that may be all they need. But I also encourage them to continue the lifestyle changes, even when we start uh, pharmacologic therapy, because it's important to use both. So let's talk about pharmacologic therapy. I guess the bad news about that is we haven't really had any uh, new antihypertensive medications for some time now, but the good news of that is uh, they're pretty much all generic. So the cost has come down significantly. So what are some good medications to start as the initial treatment? Looking at other comorbidities that a patient might have can sometimes help to tell you which medication to start. Older guidelines would say like, start a thiazide diuretic and start an ACE inhibitor. I think we do better when we individualize those recommendations based off what a patient does and what a patient already has. When I talk about that, I'm talking about comorbidities. So you think about other benefits that you might get from an ACE inhibitor and somebody that has kidney disease at baseline, that's a reason to start that. You think about somebody that has a higher anxious personality and the benefit that they might get from the use of a beta blocker as well. You think about problems that might come from your patient that is not a very good fluid drinker, and you would usually just start a little bit of a diuretic in this case, but that may not be the best for them. You might compromise some of their renal function. So I try to individualize therapy. Calcium channel blockers are good. The ACE inhibitors and ARBs are good. But again, I just try to look for other clues that would tell me that this patient might benefit from this for other reasons as well. And I can think about like a SGLT2 inhibitor for somebody with diabetes and they have chronic kidney disease and it's going to act like a diuretic a little bit and lower some blood pressure also. So even if it might not be a new medicine in the antihypertensive class, it's a new medicine that we know has some benefit and we should be taking into account some of the other benefits that we get as we're deciding which medication to start. Well, a common scenario is we may start a patient on an antihypertensive medication, uh, say an ACE inhibitor. And the first dose we choose, they're maybe not adequately controlled. So should we take the approach of maximizing the dose of one antihypertensive or do patients tend to do better using lower doses of two or sometimes three products? Yeah. More nuance here because do you think your patient wants to take two pills or one pill? And if I decide to use a combo pill for ease, how easy is it going to be to titrate that in the future? What if that formulation changes? What if their pharmacy changes? I think that there are different people that approach this topic a little differently, and some will maximize one medication's dose in order to keep the regimen simple, but you definitely increase the risk of side effects of that medication. In my practice, I tend to tell people right up front, I know we're going to be taking multiple medications, but there's a reason for that. And I'd rather you take these three pills that have some synergy together at the lowest possible dose with less risks of side effects than to maximize you on this one pill to make it easy for you or to prescribe this combination pill because I know that then you only have one for your pill burden and I want to improve that. While I do want to improve that, I also want to do what's best for the patient. So really thinking about the medications that do have some synergy. So thinking about things with sodium balance, like diuretics and stuff, stuff that blocks the RAS system, that's good. Thinking about things that block that sympathetic response along with 
vasodilators, that's more synergy versus thinking about the RAS inhibition and those sympathetic nervous system beta blockers and alpha blockers may not have that synergy. But if you think about those things that might work synergistically, you might get away with lower doses, thus less side effects, but a more profound blood pressure effect because they're working together. Yeah. And that's the approach I have taken as well. I found that my elderly patients tend to be more sensitive and experience adverse effects more commonly at higher doses. And I, I tend to think they do better on lower doses of more than one medication. All right, well, let's finish up with a topic we could probably could spend another half hour on, but hypertension is one of these conditions where medication adherence is uh, surprisingly low. I think I've seen some studies where 50% of patients may stop their antihypertensive within the first year. Uh, it's very similar to statins for hyperlipidemia and uh, bisphosphonates for osteoporosis is even worse. So how can we as primary care providers improve our patients' medication adherence as we manage them uh, with their hypertension? Yeah, I think we have to listen and we have to follow up. I don't know if you recall the SPRINT trial, but in the SPRINT trial, they were looking to see if there were any increased risks or excuse me, increased adverse outcomes reported by patients, but they followed up at a year's time. Right. So who's going to take this medicine that you started for a year before they come and tell you, you know what, this actually makes me feel this way. And that may be something that we do too often. We start this medicine, we schedule the three month or six month follow up, and we may not do the best job of telling the patient what to expect. And then also maybe giving them mitigation strategies. If you get this, if this is the way you feel, let me know, let's reduce this dose. Maybe we need to try something differently. So I think having an understanding of the value of that discussion with the patient and the value of follow-up and setting expectations would probably go a long way. The other thing I would say is we shouldn't set the patient up for failure. That medicine that you take four times a day is probably not going to be easy for them to take while they're out and about and to remember to take. And when they come back to your office and you just tell them they're non-compliant, that's definitely not the right strategy. So we should do a better job of making sure that the regimens that we provide match their lifestyle and really promote their ability to be compliant. Yeah, I agree. And uh, what I have found is most effective is to get the patients involved in their disease by managing or checking their blood pressure and then sending them to me or follow up periodically to make sure they're doing okay. And also I take the time to explain our goal of treatment in that you're not going to feel better you know, unfortunately, hypertension has a bad name. You know, it's, it's not going to make them less tense, which a lot of patients assume. So I tell them, you're not going to feel any better, but it's going to hopefully prevent heart attack, stroke, kidney failure in the future. So I've had pretty good adherence to the medications by uh, getting them involved in their disease state. Well, Ivan, this has been a very uh, fruitful discussion. Thank you so much. We have been discussing hypertension with Dr. Ivan Porter, a nephrologist from the Mayo Clinic. Ivan, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music